0: Church, we're going to be in Acts chapter 16, uh, specifically in verses 16 through 34. We've been going through 2 Samuel, we're taking a break this week. Pastor Blake, let me kind of decide where to go, and, and this is by far, I mean, all, goes, all God's word is profitable for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness, but this is a section of scripture that even as a young believer, man, the, I, just when I went over this the first time, it was so encouraging to me. So we're gonna be starting in verse 16, but I wanna give a brief overview of the pre- previous 15 verses in chapter 16. So chapter 16 starts, this is really the start of Paul's second missionary trip. And what he's doing is he's focusing in coming back to these churches in which he, sta- which he started and founded on his previous mission trip roughly five years back. So he's coming back and he's, and he's wanting to see for himself the work that God is doing in the body of Christ. In addition, he's encouraging, he's strengthening the church in the fundamental truths of Christianity and where some work needed to be done. In verses 1 through 5, as you have your Bibles open on Acts 16, you can kind of skim through it. Uh, I wish I could land the plane and, and, and dissect these verses with you. For time's sake, we do have to kind of fly over gently uh, these verses. So verses 1 through 5, we read, we're introduced to a young man named Timothy, a disciple Young disciple named Timothy. We learn a little bit about his family how his mother was a Jewish Christian, his father being Greek. So he was a half, really a half Jew. But he's spoken so well of by the people in that area, yeah. in Lystra, that Paul, hearing these good things from these people, it, you know, encourages him and invites him to join their missionary team. In verses 6 through 10, we see the Holy Spirit directing the work of Paul and his team. They were submitted, Paul and his team were submitted to the will and work of the Holy Spirit as he was opening, the Holy Spirit opening doors and closing doors and directing them to where uh, God had them to go, which would ultimately be Macedonia. Paul has a vision. He sees a man. In verse 9, he pleads to Paul. Come over to Macedonia and help us. I love the urgency from Paul. It says, immediately, immediately Paul sought really to bring the best possible help, and that's the good news, the gospel to the people of Macedonia. So in verses 11 through 15, uh, the word we is, is, is spoken, and what that is, that's the writer of Acts that we know to be Luke, who joins them on this journey to Macedonia. They made some great time as they traveled from Troas to Philippi. It it says it only took them two days. The very same, this is just kind of cool. I feel like Pastor Blake would geek over this too. But the very same trip that they would take in Acts 20, same trip, took them five days. So they had some nice tailwind. Mr. West knows a little bit about that. Uh, And they took, they had some, uh, they got some nice speed. I'm sure the currents were in their favor and it, it took them two days on the boat to get to Philippi. There they would meet Lydia. I know it's a lot of information, but this is important. Hang with me. They would meet Lydia, who was a seller of purple, which in that time was a luxurious product that was expensive and highly regarded. Some really cool things there, but for time's sake can't go down that road. Uh, The Lord opened her heart. I like that. It says the Lord opened her heart to the gospel shared by Paul. Then Lydia and her household were baptized. And then in verse 15, we'll kind of some up there, and Lydia, in the hospitality, uh, invites them to come to my house and stay. You see that, just that love of Christ, the hospitality, that um, kind of what I was speaking of earlier, that, that this body does so well of just uh, of serving and loving each other, and we see Lydia showing that in verse 15. Got that? So uh, verse 16 is where we're going to start, and we're going to slow down, and we'll, we'll take it by chunk. Let's go ahead and read. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, "These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation." A little info here: the spirit of divination. It's it's translated literally the spirit of pythona. Uh, That's where we get the word python for snake. So the spirit was given an association to, to, a, to a lowercase god, Apollo, that, that was worshipped in that area at that time. And there was a shrine not too far from where Philippi was of this god. And so we read, nonetheless, that this young slave girl, she was not only enslaved spiritually uh, to, to a, the demonic realm, but she was um, physically a slave to her master's. And it says that she was she was demonically possessed and had these, a supernatural insight to uh, foretell or not foretell, excuse me, to to kind of have a little insight of of uh, of the uh, of just the present or maybe possibly um, things to come. But she followed Paul and Silas, crying out, "These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way." Of salvation. As we will read, Paul wasn't a fan of this. We'll get into that. Verse 18, and this she did for many days. It wasn't a one-time occurrence, but it was many days. Paul, but Paul, greatly annoyed, turned aside and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Notice he was speaking not to the girl, but to the demon. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. So we see, he followed them around for many days, resulting in Paul becoming greatly annoyed, scripture says, and in the name of Jesus casted out the demon out of her. You see, Paul didn't need the demonic approval for the work he was doing for God. And Paul wasn't a fan of the enemy advertising for the kingdom work he was doing. It was the right message. We can agree that that was a truthful message, but it was the wrong messenger. It was the wrong ambassador. And Paul would flex really what Jesus did in both Matthew 8, 28 through 34 and Mark chapter 3, 11 through 12, as Jesus, Jesus silenced the demons even when they told the truth about him. Once again, right message, but it was the wrong ambassador. Nevertheless, this created a, a huge problem. These, these slave owners, these masters of this girl, received much profit over her um, of telling a little bit of the future, possibly, or, or that of the present nature. And so after the, the demon was removed, and just a side note, the songs this morning were just absolutely perfect. We're singing Jesus. There's, no, you know, there's power in the name of Jesus. And, and just speaking that over, and, and just a side note, as believers— we have the power, we have the Holy Spirit within us, and, and, and the, by just speaking in the name of Jesus, I've had many occurrences in my life, I won't go down that, but but we're just speaking in the name of Jesus over a room, over a circumstance, the peace. Just knowing that that the, the enemy must run when he hears the name of Jesus. They, I feel like a lot of times, uh, I know, unfortunately, some Christian people that can maybe become um, uh, worried or kind of, in a, in, a, in a sense, worried and fearful of the spiritual realm. But one thing we have to realize, church, is as believers in Christ Jesus, speak in the name of Jesus, they're running, they're fleeing. This, this demon in this young lady was removed, the power that we have through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And by speaking the the name of Jesus, that there's no greater name on heaven or on earth than than the name of Jesus. So they saw their hope for profit was gone. So they, they, they drug Paul and Silas to the authorities. And in verse 20, and they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. When they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. So Paul and Silas were brought before the leaders and were accused um, for being troublemakers. They were accused of teaching the gospel to Roman citizens. However, these vague charges were simply enough because they assumed what? That Paul and Silas were not Roman citizens. I think we get, church, remember Luke was a Gentile who was with them, Timothy was a half Jew. We just read about his father being Greek. While Paul and Silas were both, they were Jewish, and that's why many believe they they were singled out in the first place. And why the multitude and the magistrates felt free to abuse Paul and Silas, because they felt confident just by looking at these Jewish men that they were not Roman citizens. We know that later on in chapter 16, uh, we find out that we know that Paul and Silas actually were, and Paul doesn't let them off the hook very easily. But, but I want us I want us to um, church I, I know when I read God's word <clears throat> I can sometimes read and, and miss the miss the depth of what I just read. I want us to really sit and and these men. <clears throat> were severely beaten. They were more likely whipped with the Roman scourge, also called the flag room. The verse says they laid many stripes. It would literally, this this weapon, I'll show a picture in a little bit, after each hit would remove open, I mean just remove flesh. And the Jewish law had a legal maximum of hits. They always say 40 minus one, just in case they miscounted. But 39, 39 was, was the limit. You Can't go higher than that. The Romans had no such limit. So we have no understanding of how many times Paul and Silas were brutally whipped. I'll go ahead and show the photo. This was more than likely the, um, the weapon used here. It's called, the, like I said, the Roman scourge. And we see... And the ends, so it was held together by, you know, leather, leather thongs, and, and, and at the end was either, um, man, uh, metal, it was spikes, you said sheep bone, um, uh, a lead piece, and that, and, and that was used to, like I said, remove the flesh, and to brutally beat criminals or slaves. This is a quote from BibleHistory.com, and I think it gives us a good in-depth description. And as you're looking at that, the Romans would, this is a quote, the Romans would, would, according to custom, scourge a condemned criminal before he was put to death. The Roman scourge, also called the flagrum, was a short whip made of two or three leather ox hide thongs or ropes connected to a handle, as in the sketch above. The leather thongs were knotted with a number of small pieces of metal, usually zinc and or iron, attached at various intervals. Scourging would quickly remove the skin, according to the history of the punishment of a slave was particularly dreadful. The leather was knotted with bones or heavy indented pieces of bronze. This was a brutal, brutal beating. Physically, Paul and Silas are hurting. They're suffering for the sake of Christ. And those who have read through Acts and, and, and the rest of um, Paul's writings, you know that these these rough experiences happened a lot to this man. A few chapters I think it's a chapter before 16 maybe 2 but Paul was stoned. Now he's being brutally beaten along with Silas for the work he was doing for God. I find it interesting so they're in Philippi and 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 Paul would write the the book of Philippians to the people of Philippi and he would write that in this same to the same area that he was just beaten. This is Paul, Philippians 1.29. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. Paul counted it as a privilege of suffering for the sake of Christ. That's Philippians 1.29. Then we read, They threw him into prison, so they were beaten and thrown into prison. And in church, these next two verses... Are the reason, you know, all of it's amazing, but these next two verses, man, they are encouraging. Verse 24: Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Not just prison, but the inner prison, and their feet were in stocks, very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable being in wooden. I mean, that is a a type of torture within itself, of putting your feet into stocks. It was made so that you, you couldn't get comfortable. You're already super uncomfortable, then add the beating that they just received. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Falsely accused by being troublemakers. They said they were troublemakers. They were arrested beaten and in prison Paul and Silas's response to that was praying and worshiping God not running away but running towards God as their refuge and strength in this time of great persecution and physical suffering. You see, the Romans could falsely accuse them. They could beat them. They could throw them in the prison, but they could not stop their worship and admiration of God. What an amazing response. Man, what an amazing response to persecution. Here in America, it might look different than being beaten and thrown into a prison. However, it does happen in other ways, whether in the workplace, whether in schools, I know uh, just insight. your kids who are in public school. <clears throat> you know, I remember being in, being in high school as well, um, even on my football team, just, just who I was, you know, as I got saved and sharing that, there was, there was you, you lose friendships. You know, you can be joked at for being that, that Bible belt boy or whatever it may be. Um, You can be um, definitely, you're maybe not going to be invited anymore to those things. Little things like that. The persecution does come in workplace. Maybe you're not getting that, that next job because of people knowing who you are in Christ and because you're not going out to maybe the bars after work where everybody goes and socializes. You're separating yourself. It looks different. And then there's our cases where maybe you are verbally and, and physically abuse for your relationship in Christ. What an amazing response. And so church, I, w- I want just to take a step back. And, and what is our response? What is your response? What is my response? When a trial, a persecution, suffering in our lives comes as I was preparing this text, I know Eli and I had a conversation last Sunday, and he like, I'm trying to remember exactly his words, but I'm going to paraphrase here. Basically, what would your response be, Luke? After beaten, beaten. After beaten, you know, falsely accused, which personally for me, being falsely accused, that's a big deal. I couldn't help, as he asked that question, for me to think back on by far the hardest trial that I've been in in my life here on earth in my short 23 years, and how my heart and how my mind and how my soul and my initial reaction to that trial, I'll just share briefly with you, church. Some of you may know about a year and a half ago, um, uh, let's see, we're about nine months being pregnant, or excuse me, nine months of being married. My wife was seven months, six months pregnant And so, you know, we're just entering into marriage. Uh, A baby's on its way. It's an exciting, but it's a stressful time for for a young man, like at least for me it was. And um, I got really ill, I got really sick. I was sick um, left and right every week, catching viruses, catching colds, catching everything. Just sick, 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 sick for about two months, just in and out of being sick, always being tired, exhausted, fatigued. My lymph nodes were swollen all my neck, it hurt to move, and just, you know, massive lymph nodes, so I, I met with my primary doctor, I took some tests, they encouraged me to go get a um, ultrasound on, on a few of my lymph nodes that were, uh, that could be cancerous, because they weren't going down, and so um, I went to the doctor, and, and they're doing an ultra, ultrasound on my neck, they're rubbing the gel, they're doing it, and it just hit me. A week earlier, we were doing the same thing, but from my baby in my wife's womb, And now I'm sitting in this chair and they're doing the same thing. And it's not cold, but uh, they're doing the same thing on my neck for possible cancerous lymph nodes. I was in a position, church, where I was fearful, I was anxious, I was worried, and I was mad. Honestly. Why now? And I was questioning just the timing of it all, and for the first, so I, I'm trying to make this quick. They scan it. The nurse who's scanning me starts freaking out. It wasn't wasn't very calm, <laughs> and just her um, body language in general. I'm I'm you know I'm just laying there and I'm internally going, oh my goodness, my wife's getting really upset because she really did not hold herself very well, but uh, she made it quite known that something was not right on my left side here. <clears throat> and they send the scans to the doctor who examines them. The doctor examined it and sent it to my primary doctor and said pretty confidently that my left side looked like it had cancerous lymph node um, right right under my chin and connected to my neck here, um, and that I needed to get a biopsy to further um, investigate. There was a month span in between that, that scan and saying, hey, this looks like cancer, to getting a biopsy. That, that between that month, that was the most brutal time. This is where I'm getting at, where I was, in, I was isolated. I felt, you know, you, it, I, don't, I, I pray against any of you, if you guys understanding that, but, you know, uh, you just don't, you don't feel like anybody else knows what you're going through, you know. And, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just, I'm, I isolated myself. I was bitter. I was angry. I was anxious. <clears throat> and for the first three weeks, I was miserable. I was not like Paul and Silas singing praises and worshiping God. But I got to a point, like I said, in the third week, where I just, I was broken. As a man, I tried to fix things. I couldn't fix this. This was what it is and what it was. And it broke me, it broke my pride, it broke everything in me and I, let, I, just, I just opened my hands. I said, God, I remember praying this boldly, God, I don't know what's gonna happen, but I love you and I trust you and help me. Give me the boldness. Give me the strength to wake up and go to work with the unknown. And no matter the circumstance, Father, may it not withhold or take away my worship and praise to you. And that was a prayer I didn't just say once, but as a continuation for the next week. And the Lord really, really met me there. My wife wife and I were really in a position where we had faith. Whatever God had, we had faith. And we knew that that was his will. That's a tough place to be, but we were singing. The biopsy comes. My wife and I pray boldly. I'm talking on our knees, boldly praying that when they scan that, when they'd come back, I'm not trying to spend so much time here, but I think this really applies. I'm not much of a storyteller, but this really applies to where, this, where, this at, where we're at in Scripture. And uh, the doctor came in, and we were just praying that he would, see, he would look at the cancer, you know, scanning it again to try to find it, and he'd go, it's gone. It's clear. You're good. That was our prayer boldly. And by the grace of God, that's exactly what happened. If you want further details, i got to go for time's sake. But that was exactly what happened. And man, it grew my heart and love for for God and just trust and faith in every step that we take here on this earth. We are not promised rainbows and butterflies. We're going to have those hard times. Paul and Silas give us a great example of what to do in those times. And that is to shift our focus from our circumstance to our Heavenly Father. Paul and Silas were in this hardship, but they kept the focus on praying and worshiping God. Physically beaten, but spiritually strong. Church, may this be the example that we follow. To, to, no matter what this present life may bring, may we have our eyes and hearts and minds fixated on the Father. Colossians 3, 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Holy Spirit, help us to be obedient to that call. So not only was this an example to me and to to us here at church 2,000-ish years later, but but, but I love verse 25, and the prisoners were listening to them. They were an example to the other prisoners around them. And people are always listening and watching church. They are. They're always listening, they're always watching. What are they hearing? What are they seeing? as proclaimed believers, let it be the light of Christ. For example, my clients knew what I was, I'm a personal trainer, and my clients knew what I was going through, and I got to share the goodness of God no matter what. They knew I was about to go get a biopsy, and I got to share boldly to them that my wife and I, we have trust in our God, and no matter the outcome, we know that His will and desire and plan is far greater than what we could ever come up with or imagine, and we trust him because I'm not living for here, for now. My eyes and mind and and treasure is set on things above and in heaven. And if God calls me at 22, he calls me at 22. That was a tough place to get, and it took me three weeks. But church, know that people are listening, they're watching. The prisoners were listening, and they're watching. Like I said, as believers, let it be the light of Christ that they're seeing in our workplace, in our schools, in our homes, our children are watching. What are they seeing? What is the example that we're setting? Sweet Afia Gray, she's 11 months, but she's watching. She's watching. Verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword He was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. Paul and Silas knew who was in control. It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't the jailer. It was their heavenly father who ultimately ordained. He ordained. This wasn't some co- coincidence. This was a God-ordained earthquake that, 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 that opened the doors and loosened their change. This was the work of God. Now the jailer, verse 27, I like this. Now the jailer was going to kill himself because, um, let's reread that again, verse 27 to 28. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. And Paul Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. The reasoning for that, the reasoning for this jailer about to commit suicide was because the, if the keeper of the prison, under Roman law, if the keeper of, or the guard of the prison allowed prisoners to escape, they would be sentenced to their sentence. So the prisoners that escape, they would be given their sentence in addition to more than likely being put to death. So he's like, I'm gonna be put to death. I might as well do it myself by possibly escaping being um, humili- humiliated, humiliated, and um, beaten, and maybe possibly um, uh, tortured. So I'm going to die anyways. However, before he was able to do so, we see that Paul cried with a loud voice, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Church, I'm going to be honest, these prison doors open, and I'm in prison, I'm out. Gone. Four four speed, I'm out. Like, those doors are opening, Maybe Paul and Silas would probably be limping, but but me, I am gone. Look at the heart of Paul and Silas. Look at it. Doors are opening. They can go, but they stayed. Why? I would have been gone, but they stayed. They were more concerned for the jailer and his eternity. For the jailer and the other prisoners, they were more concerned with their eternity than their current eternity freedom and comfort. Fulfilling the call to make disciples, man, is that encouraging. Because I already admitted I would have been gone. And there are times in my Christian walk, whether in workplace or or wherever it may be, where I do seek comfort over making disciples. Paul and Silas being submitted to the Holy Spirit. We saw that, we talked about that earlier, right? How they were, the Holy Spirit was opening and closing doors and they were just submitted and they were willing to take that step. If Paul and Silas were standing right here, right now, they would want to make it clear it was not their abilities, it wasn't what they did, it was being submitted and being openly available to the Holy Spirit, being openly available to what God desired for their lives. They wouldn't want the credit. So for you and I, just being available, having that heart of seeing others in the eternity, their eternity over our personal freedom and comfort. Verse 29, then he called for a light and ran in and fell down. Speaking to the jailer, he fell down before Paul and Silas and he, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? The humility, fallen down. What must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas not only shared the gospel, he'll get into that a little bit, or he'll share what to do, and, and, and um, he not only is going to verbally share, but, but, but they lived it out. They lived it out by staying and really sh- just loving them with God's agape love, that sacrificial love. So it made this jailer question: what do they have? What must I do? What do they have that I don't? Verse 31. So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe, and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, I'm so thankful. My salvation is not based on my works. Church, I'm so thankful. It has nothing to do with my attendance here. Church, I'm so thankful. It has nothing to do with my parents and their relationship with the Father. Each and every single one of us has to make that decision. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul tells this jailer to believe in Jesus. And that's the encouragement I want to give to anyone here that has not, that is yet to repent and to put their faith and trust in Jesus, to believe. God loves you. And he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for all of mankind. That whoever repents and confesses with their mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead. Scripture says, not maybe, but you will be saved. So I desire everyone in this room to know where their eternity lies with their creator. It's not by works, not by might, but all through what Christ did on the cross and our faith and trust in him as Lord and Savior. Verse 32, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house, and he took them the same hour of the night. And washed their stripes, and immediately he and his family were baptized. Now, when he had brought them into his, uh, his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Worship team, you can come on up. A tra- transformed life. This jailer, like just hours before, his job was to keep these men in prison. Hours before. Jesus wasn't his Lord and his Savior, and he, and, and he surrenders his life, he was, he, he, um, and you just see that instant change life. Come back home. Let me serve you. Let me wash your stripes. It reminds me of Jesus setting the example before us, washing the disciples' feet, serving his disciples, and this jailer instantly just see—you just see the light of Christ in him just serving— Paul and Silas. What an encouragement this text is for me and, and, and as I'm as I studied this past week it was a continual Lord help me. Holy Spirit, help me may I see people through the eyes um, that, that you see them and Lord may I serve them and God in those times of future sufferings and trials that, that will come here on this earth may I rejoice. And may I keep my eyes fixated on you, knowing that you are God. You are God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And what you have for me on this earth, may I be obedient to walking in that. Just a few takeaways as we kind of close. Um, Church, let's not not be hearers of the word, but let's be doers as well. I always I always ask the youth, and, and it's an encouragement that, that the, as I read Scripture, I always sit, take, like, take a step back, God, sh- sh- reveal to me areas in my life where I can grow. How can I be a better father? How can I, Lord, be a better son to my parents, and, and ultimately, more importantly, a son to you? God, allow me to be the lighter Christ in my workplace. And just uh, that continuation of, of being sanctified and being refined, uh, it, it starts with humility. And so, church, I would encourage you to be humble in your walk with the Lord. And like Paul and Silas, let's be submitted to the Holy Spirit and where he guides, where he directs, worshiping and praising God on the mountains and on the, in the valleys in our temporary time here on earth, boldly sharing the gospel to those around us and being the hands and feet of Jesus. Let's do it, church. Let's grow. Let's be lights in our communities. We will have communion in time of worship after uh, the first song will come up and we'll do it. We'll partake together. Um, But let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for this uh, morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that God, Acts 16, was to my heart and to the church. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you for your patience with me and, and to everyone else, Father. God, may we be submitted to your spirit, submitted to your word, and obedient to the call to make disciples. You are a good God, Father. May we not live, may we not lay our treasures here on this temporary life on earth, but God, may we set our mind on things above, and God, may, we, may our heart and our desires and our treasure be in heaven. God, Paul and Silas were just submitted to you, and they entrusted you. I pray for that same boldness, trust, and faith in our lives. Open our eyes, open our hearts to your word. Let we be humble. That we continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of your truth. And of who you are. We love you, God. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.